Hello and welcome to the Meesun podcast in which we talk to Meesun members and associates about their recent or ongoing research into the early and medieval world of Central Europe. I'm Karen Culver and today it is my pleasure to meet Oshoya Lang and talk about her work on the Roman town of Aquincum on the Lemus in Pannonia, its abandonment and legacy on the early medieval period of Aquincum. Oshoya wanted to be an archaeologist when she first saw the magnificent Roman towns of Lepitus Magna and Sabratha in present-day Libya, where she spent some years as a child. She is now a Roman period archaeologist and has worked at the Aquinca Museum in Budapest for the last 23 years and has been museum director for the last seven years. Oshoya is involved in both planned and developer-funded excavations at the Aquincum civil town and its vicinity, Besides working on excavations, she is also curator of the collection of Roman wooden objects at the museum. These are mostly building materials. Her research is connected to the Aquincum civil town, specifically the periodization of the buildings, including the re-evaluation of old excavation materials. Her interests include Roman urbanization, the processes of urban development, the identities of various populations in the town, as well as aspects of industry and crafts in an urban setting. She's also interested in the abandonment of Aquincum and the period following the abandonment, which is what we're going to talk about today. In what little free time Ashoya has, I know personally she is a member of a keen group of volunteers at Aquincum. She also loves reading, cooking and travelling, and dancing whenever it's possible. Ashoya. Welcome to the Mieson podcast. Thank you very much and welcome back. And it's very nice and an honor to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, now, not all of our listeners will know Aquincum. Please, could you briefly describe it, particularly its location, foundation and function? Yeah. The settlement complex of Aquincum, that is actually made of the legionary fortress, the military town surrounding the fortress, and the civil town, about two kilometers to the north, are all located in the present-day Obuda, so it's actually the Buddha side of Budapest, of the River Danube. And that is the area that has been inhabited since the prehistory up until the modern period. The modern uh, boundaries of Budapest on the Buddha side correspond more or less to the, to the Roman boundaries of the settlement. So we actually we are talking about the Roman predecessor of, of Budapest because the settlement parts of, of Aquincum and other settlement parts uh, of the Roman uh, period are actually located uh, in the present-day uh, Buda area. Um, the settlement parts of Aquincum mainly comprise of, as I said, the legionary fortress, which is located very close to the Arpad Bridge. That was the, the center of, of, uh, of the whole settlement complex, not only from the military point of view, because the legion was stationed here from the last decades of the first century AD, so it's mainly 6,000 soldiers. Um, also, the offices related to the governor, the, the governor of, of the province, since from 106 AD, Aquincum was the capital of Lower Pannonia. So that means so many offices, so many officials working here, and uh, so many people related to, to the governor's uh, uh, offices itself. So the bureaucracy was really large in, in this province. Uh, we also have the military settlement surrounding the fortress, uh, which meant about 30,000, 40,000 inhabitants in its heyday, which is the 2nd, 3rd century AD. 
So these were mainly relatives of the soldiers living there, Americans, obviously, uh, and also some indigenous people living here. And we also have the, the civil settlement, the civil town, which is the area of the present-day archaeological park of Aquincum. Uh, that was a smaller settlement uh, with about 10, 11,000 uh, people living there, uh, mainly veterans as well as, again, um, Americans and all sorts of other people settling here. Um, and also we have a few villa estates, so a few estates in on the Buddha Hills. We know about 50 of them. Um, and also we have the Governor's Palace, which is located on an island. That was a large palace, over 10,000 uh, meters square, what we know these days, actually. But it's not excavated fully, so there should be some surprises uh, still under the ground. Um, that was actually the palace and the official home of the governor. So it is a large complex. Um, the heyday of the whole settlement complex dates to the 2nd, 3rd century AD, uh, and the several parts of the settlement were abandoned in different periods. The civil town was abandoned first, towards the end of the 3rd century AD, uh, while the legionary fortress and the military town went on to, to reach the 4th century, and the military town began to shrink, and, and, and some areas were also abandoned. Um, nevertheless, people still actually inhabited certain areas. And by the time uh, Aquincum and the whole province of Pannonia was handed over to the Huns in uh, 433, the, most of the, the uh, settlement parts were already in ruins. Anyhow, uh, most of the buildings were already in ruins by the end of the th uh, 5th century AD. So this is the history in brief. <laughs> <laughs> I actually thought it was in decline by the middle of the third century, and you say that was the sort of height of the of the town and uh, fortresses where there were fifty thousand people. Yes, together. I mean, uh, counting the the military staff as well as the civilians, we are talking about uh, fifty, sixty thousand people altogether which is a nice number, but concerning that it is a capital and a very important capital from the strategic point of view because we are the Danube Bend. So uh, we are actually def actually defending a very important part of the Roman Empire. Uh, that's why a legion was stationed here. Another legion was stationed in present-day Komarum, Sogn. These were the two legions that were actually protecting the Danube Limes uh, in this part of the Roman Empire because we must not forget that from the north, the Roman Empire always faced the attacks of the tribe of, of some Germanic people, and on the eastern side, coming from the great plain of, uh, of Hungary, were always attacking the Iranian tribes of the Sarmatians. So these were actually two certain areas, one from the east and one from the north, sometimes attacking at the same time, which made the whole uh, protection of the border very difficult and a really important task. So that's why Aquincum was in a very, very important position concerning the, the defense of, of the Roman Limes. Concerning the, the so-called abandonment of certain settlement parts, this was actually a surprise to us to discover that the civilian town was abandoned much earlier than the other parts of the settlement. Previously, it was thought that it should have been sometime in the 4th century. But when we started revaluating the finds, like ceramic fragments, coins, and all sorts of other fine materials, as well as try to look at the old excavation documentations concerning Roman houses and all sorts of public buildings in the civil town, we discovered there are no 4th century layers, no 4th century periods at all, no 4th century finds at all concerning the civil town. So this settlement part was actually abandoned much earlier, towards the end of the 3rd century. 
which was a was kind of a surprise for us first. And we also tried to find answers to to the question of why it was evident so early. Aquincum is not alone in this case. The same thing happened in some other Roman civilian settlements, uh, also in Pannonia and elsewhere in the Roman Empire. So where did all the people go to? They didn't go that far. They moved down to the military town. The reason why they actually left this part is partially political or military because the civil town was uh, originally uh, defended by Vols on four sides. It's kind of a rectangular-shaped settlement, had fortifications on four sides. But turn of the 2nd and 3rd century AD, during this large peaceful period, decided to demolish the the fortifications and even houses were built over the defence and and the fortifications because they thought that they won't need this anymore. And then after 50 years, towards the middle of the 3rd century, the barbarian attacks uh, again uh, grew from the other side of the river. So the civil town had no protection at all anymore. That was one one reason why the people decided to move away to a more defended place, since living somewhere around the legionary fortress always meant an extra protection for those people living there. And on the other side, it was not attractive anymore from the economic point of view either. Because the people who could actually buy all sorts, all sorts of products concerning industrial activities as well as all sorts of um, uh, products, those were the military. They had regular salary, they had the money, they could afford to buy the goods. So that could be also a reason why people decided to move away and move towards the, the area of the legionary fortress, because that was the place where the solvent demand actually just existed. And it's also very interesting and important to to note that it was a, a gradual decline. So it wasn't just from one day to another. Um, the excavations revealed uh, the roof derbish on just below the present grass. So there was no ash layers or nothing that indi- would indicate uh, destruction. So people just simply moved away. Well, we could actually just observe that the buildings along the main roads remained in use for a longer period. Some 4th century coins were actually found in the area of the of the main roads, indicating that they've actually used the roads on. And these roads were remained in use uh, in, in the next decades and even next centuries as well. But then the, the inhabitants did move away. Or they partially refortified or fortified the villa estates in the hills as well, because they seemed to be more secure to, to be able to... Uh, sort of fortify these buildings and stay there because the archaeological finds datable to the 4th century were actually present in these villa buildings as well as in the military town, but it, they are completely missing in the in the civil town. So that would actually show that this settlement was evident earlier than the other parts. You've, you've mentioned the military side quite a bit. I always had the impression that Roman military were largely taken from local people, Was that the case here or were they imported from all sorts of places around the empire? Basically, they were recruited here, recruited from the local people. But when they were actually just taken to the other side of the empire for some, I don't know, battles, they were obviously recruited there as well. And they, when they moved back to Aquincum, to their permanent station, they obviously brought both these uh, soldiers with themselves. So all sorts of uh, soldiers actually did serve in, in, in the Aquincum legion as well. Uh, this is also indicated by the finds related to the, the relatives of the soldiers who were actually coming from all over the Roman Empire. But it's also something very important that only people with Roman citizenship could be recruited into the Roman legion. Um, concerning the the origin of the soldiers, the sarcophagus and also the, the gravestones are very give good uh, indication on, on where these people were coming from. 
because they're usually their homeland is, is indicated, or even their names uh, speak for, for their origin as well. Um, we do have Celtic names, for instance, on some of the gravestones, indicating that even in the 3rd century AD, which is already 300 years on, uh, they, they still used and they, they gave uh, Celtic names to their kids sometimes. That is an indication for for the local population. But as I said, in some cases, the, the origin or the birthplace of the soldier is indicated on its gravestone or even on a sarcophagus. So, so we can certainly tell that people from the province of Britannia or from the Netherlands, for instance, or even from the Middle East, uh, many of them actually ended up in the legion in, in Aquincum. Uh, with citizenship... Nice one. Yeah, there are there were certain troops, auxiliary troops, where the people who who were recruited there had no citizenship. They had it when they actually just finished their own, the, the the military service after twenty years, which is a large, <laughs> large number. Uh, but most of them, unfortunately, died during all sorts of battles and uh, these uh, war situations. But those who survived and had the chance to to become veterans, uh, they received Roman citizenship as well as a piece of land and some money. But that that was the case for the auxiliary troops. The legion uh, only had people with Roman citizenship. You have mentioned that there were people moving in from the north and from the east, and they were coming in as invaders, but I also imagine they were coming in as settlers. Um, What would they have found at Aquincum as they were arriving? It depends on which period we are talking about. If they arrived during the heyday of the settlement complex, let's say uh, towards the turn of the 2nd and 3rd century AD, they found a flourishing urban environment, a flourishing settlement complex with lots of settlers, lots of offices, lots of uh, public buildings, road system and a, and a functioning aqueduct and also two, two amphitheaters and so on. Um, these people... Uh, did actually settle very easily and got Romanized very quickly. They got all the Roman uh, habits, the Roman lifestyle. They they got Roman names. But that was uh, still a, a period when the Roman Empire was a strong and uh, a nicely maintained complex. Um, but if we are talking about the late Roman period, let's say the 4th century, or after the second half of the 3rd century AD when the barbarian attacks became more frequent and the political situation was more unstable and even the economic situation was 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 more and more unstable uh that was a time where people coming from outside of the Roman Empire, mainly the Brabian areas, brought their own tradition, brought their own uh, habits with themselves. They got accepted into the Roman Empire they could actually move in and settle here. In return, they had to be recruited into the Roman army. But those were already, in a way, barbarian soldiers who were not uh, uh, Romanized that much anymore. Uh, Obviously, they started changing the Roman material culture with their own habits and their own traditions. So the Roman culture began to change uh, you can certainly tell it from the different type of finds coming from the graves, uh, the different type of vessels the people used. So uh, I think they found a partially Romanized, uh, urbanized and Romanized life here. But because they, they brought their own traditions, they began to change the whole settlement that they found here. And at the end, what we find here is less a, a classical Roman settlement than a partially barbarized settlement. Yeah, it sounds like modern migration. 
Yeah, exactly. Migrants move in, they find a new culture, and they change the culture subtly, often in very exciting ways. Yeah, and it's also very interesting, and, and there are certain notes uh, on trying to draw parallels between the present situation and the Roman times, which is which is very much relevant and valid. It's only we have to see a huge difference between migration in Roman times and migration nowadays. Because when we talk about uh, migration in Roman times, back in the second and third century, we're talking about migration inside the Roman Empire. So it's not uh, not the same when we talk about people coming from outside of the Roman Empire or people migrating inside the empire. So it, if you have like inhabitants living in the Near East or in Britannia or in North Africa, they were still part of the very same state. They had the very same type of um, culture. They were all Romanized people. They all spoke Latin. They kept themselves to the Latin law. So whenever he went, he found the very same things. They found the same bath building. They found the same law. They found the same type of uh, houses. That's why I'm saying it's a globalized world, because they were all just Roman people. They had the very same Roman citizenship as well. While if you're talking about barbarians coming from outside of the Roman Empire, and I think this is where we could actually draw parallels with the present-day situation. They had a different culture, material culture as well as other type of culture. And that meant a huge change uh, and a huge impact on the, on the Roman culture itself. And you can certainly tell it from the finds. So from the archaeological point of view, it is something that we've been very nicely observed. Did the... No, I, I really am thinking about the far abroad outsiders, the the barbarians and the people from the Far East, um, did they use a quincum? Did they actually live there or take the stones and build something else? Uh, those people that we call barbarians, they were, they were tribes coming from the Hungarian plain or coming from the north, mainly Germanic or Sarmatian tribes. They had a different, say, movable lifestyle. So they were not actually just settled people. They were always moving on, taking their animals with them and moving on and on. So they didn't really get used to this kind of settled lifestyle. When they arrived to Aquincum, what they saw were partially ruined buildings, and partially still standing buildings, partially still functioning aqueduct, and partially still functioning public buildings, like bath buildings with floor heating and all sorts of things. These are the things that they cannot do anything with because they had, had nothing like that back in, in their homelands. So what they actually did is they dug their pit houses just next to the Roman half-ruined buildings and reused the stones for their ovens, for instance, in the pit houses. But they mainly did not move into the even still halfway standing buildings. They did not use the, the stone buildings themselves, but reused the stones for other purposes because they just could not do anything with this urbanized lifestyle that we found here. And this is the reason why they they did not maintain the aqueduct, they did not maintain the floor-heated rooms anymore, that they fell into decay. We have a very nice example from the 6th and 7th century AD from the Avarian period, where there was a complete Avarian settlement, a small Avarian village was actually just constructed next to a Roman bath building. They did not move into the bath building, they did not live in the, in a by that time still standing building, but they took the stones out and build their ovens in their semi-sunken pit houses. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, so they made good use of the Roman material, but they used as an open quarry, so, but, but not as a, not as a building. It's not primitivity, it's a different culture that they brought here. And it's completely different what the Romans actually established here. Yes, and nomadic culture is highly civilised. 
but has not as much stuff as we do. But it's a different civilization. It's not worse or better. It's just different. It's very different and, and far less cluttered than ours. Mm. Mm. Um, I have seen Gur here, the, the yurt. Is that what the Scythian people were living in? Uh, this is a good question because um, uh, in the area of Aquincum, we have less information on, on that period due to the fact that the pioneer archaeologists only uh, concentrated on the Roman remains. So that's also a problem concerning the very late uh, period of, of the Roman times and on the early medieval part. All they wanted to present are complete ground plans of Roman buildings. So this is actually a, a problem from the uh, scientific point of view that we did lose a lot of information from layers and from finds uh, due to the fact that uh, the early archaeologists did not think that it was important. So. So we don't actually know a lot of things about migration or early medieval period. What we know is actually that part of the legionary fortress, walls of the legionary fortress, were reused in medieval times. The first uh, medieval castle was built on the remains of the legionary fortress. The first monasteries were constructed all around the Roman legionary fortress. Interesting, interesting. Um, when everything was declining, what happened to the trading, the merchants? Um, obviously, as you have said, the, the army, the military was a big source of market. But I would have, I imagined that the merchants were buying things from the other side of the Limes, mm. trading and passing them on into the Roman Empire, into the centre. Was that going on? Actually, there was a big trading connection between the barbarian areas and, and Roman Empire ever since the the establishment of the province. Obviously, in times of wars and battles, this kind of trading connections probably just ceased or, or they did not work. But uh, there were certain long periods, decades, without any war or battles. And there was a strong commercial connection between uh, the, the barbarian part and Obuda or Aquincum. Uh, we know of livestock being bought from, from the barbarian area and the Romans paid with actually Roman money. We know it from, from the excavation results coming from the Pesh side because we have large Sarmatian settlements excavated in, in the Pesh side where we have large uh, Sarmatian pit houses with Roman ceramics coming from, from them, Roman coins coming. And even the, the most beautiful uh, emerald Roman brooch came from a Sarmatian house and not from here, from Aquincum, which is, which is weird. But yes, uh, towards the 4th century, because due to the political instability and also due to the, to the economic decline, trade did decline as well. So the people could not afford to have uh, expensive, uh, I don't know, Aegean wine, for instance, on their table, or cannot afford the Spanish oil, for instance, anymore. So certain goods did disappear from, from Pannonia and from Aquincum. Certain ceramic types actually just disappear, like Samian ware did not uh, enter the province from, uh, from the last decades of the third century onwards. Uh, obviously, different things did appear like locally made ceramics. So, yes, there was a certain decline because the people had just simply no money to buy these, these kind of goods. So they tried to uh, depend less and less on, on exterior trading. The Roman Empire did finally fall, well, sort of fade away. So the, fi the Roman Empire did finally fade away, um, particularly in this eastern edge of the empire by the early medieval period, both in terms of physical and infrastructure legacy, 
but also lifestyle, trading patterns and so on, as you have just said. Today, when I, as a 21st century person, look at the world, I tend to see an awful lot of medieval stuff still around. Okay, I'm British, so a lot of our legal system was established in the medieval period. You wander around and you can see the field systems that were established in the medieval period. What would the people by the 6th century have seen of the Roman soft infrastructure? That's an interesting question. What people inherited or what was the legacy of, of, of Rome in, in the early medieval times here? Um, I think the situation is rather different from other parts of Europe because we have these nomadic tribes and nomadic lifestyle uh, uh, taking large part of the Carpathian Basin and also the area of Aquincum as well. But still, um, we still had the, the remains of the building. We still had the the road system, which is very important because even these days, the road system of the Buddha side uh, follows more or less the very same path where the Roman roads used to run. So um, this is something that we inherited even today, not only in medieval times. Um, in terms of, of regulation, yeah, the system of flows, even the medieval part of, of this part of Europe also inherited the system of flows from, from Roman times. Um, architecture, art sculptures. Some actually did survive into the medieval uh, period here, and some medieval buildings did make good use of the Roman stones, like uh, carved Roman stones, for instance. So um, even uh, sculpture elements from the point of view of art, it was important for the medieval people. That's what they inherited from Roman times. There were certain vessel types, like the Lysamium ware, which actually amazed the medieval people. They did not know how to make this, and they decided that oh, this must have come from heaven or somewhere, because they just cannot decide on how, how on earth could anybody make such a lovely and beautiful vessel. So um, I think um, there were certain things that they misinterpreted or uh, did not really know the exact explanation between certain things. Like uh, in, in case of Rome, we had statue of, of uh, Marcus Aurelius, which is the only large bronze statue surviving from the Roman period, which is an equestrian statue of Marcus Aurelius. And the reason why it survived all these centuries because it's of bronze and it's a very important material in medieval times. But it did survive because people thought that it was actually depicting Constantinus the Great, the first Christian emperor. So that's why they did not decide, they did not actually just melt the bronze statue of Marcus Aurelius. So these are the certain things that people could not explain. So they gave a different explanation to, to Roman remains. And this is how they actually just survived and later on had impact on, on medieval architecture, medieval art or actually just medieval thinking. They did have a great impact. And in, even in case of Aquincum, it had an impact, uh, but it's mainly on, on architecture and, and the road system. Yes, the, the road systems are amazing. Being English, we now call one road in England the A5. Mm. Very romantic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's Watling Street. It's, it's a Roman road. Mind you, the St. Andre Road, which runs across uh, Aquincum and actually is the main north-south road, is actually running on Roman path. It used to be the Limes Road. And all those roads running just next to the Danube Bank are also of Roman origin. And possibly even on the Pesh side, we have a few roads that are related to Roman times. The Elizabeth Bridge and the road that runs from the Elizabeth Bridge 
into the eastern part of Hungary. It's the main east-west road. It runs on the path of the, the commercial road that, used, that was actually used by the barbarians and the Romans as well. So there are certain roads and settlement parts in Pest that used to be actually actually originating from, from Roman times. Yeah, it's all around us and underneath us the whole time. And that's, I think, why I love history. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, for my final question, I would like to look at something which is really very close to my heart and perhaps relates to your experience as a museum director. And that is of informing the general public of this period, the early, early medieval, and how can it be relevant today? Given the limited information available and the limited materials, particularly as these people were nomadic, semi-nomadic, how could we approach and display this period to a modern audience, Hungarian or international? How do we make it relevant and understandable for, for us? This is a very good question. I think it's not an easy task, uh, partially because uh, from the, let's call it migration period or early medieval period, we have less finds to present to the public. So what we have to do, uh, we have to rely on these very late Roman find material and we have to rely on uh, the, the built heritage that we have. And uh, what we have to make good use is the tool of digital reconstructions to be able to present uh, the, the afterlife of certain Roman buildings in medieval times. For instance, we have the amphitheaters, for instance, which were reused in medieval times as fortifications. Um, so I think the tool of, of using um, digital reconstructions, uh, presenting finds in a way that people could actually just understand and connect the finds to, to this uh, period. And also, um, it's very important to be able to explain to people that this is this was not the end of uh, of the world. There was the, the kind of a complete abandonment of an area. There were always people living here because visitors tend to think that after the Roman Empire declined or fell, there was nobody actually living here until the the foundation of the Hungarian state, which is false. There were hundreds of years between the two, and there were still certain periods where less people lived here or more people lived here from different cultural background. But there were always inhabitants in this area. So to present it to the public, it is a, a very big challenge for us um, just to show them that it was not some kind of a decline. It's just a different kind of uh, culture, different kind of civilization. So as I said, um, relying on reconstructions, uh, finds, and using all sorts of narratives and explaining how this transition period went on. And also, I think the role of the museum is very important in this in this case, because uh, the museum is the place to explain more about this period by using the finds themselves mainly, because that's the way we can present things authentically. Oh, uh, sure, yeah. Thank you for all these wonderful answers. And unfortunately, that is where we must leave it. We've run out of time as usual. Oh, uh, sure, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your experience of Equincum and its legacy with us today. I thank you for the possibility to present all this on Equincum, so thank you. Thank you. It's been so interesting. And today I've been talking to Ashoya Lang, the director of Equincum in Budapest, about Equincum Town and its legacy. My thanks to everyone for listening. I hope you found it as interesting and enjoyable as I did. Please do look out for the next MISAM podcast in which MISAM members and associates talk about their recent or current research into medieval Central Europe. And if you have research that you or your colleagues are doing 
and you would like to talk about it to other members, please do contact me through the Meeson board or Meeson website administrator. I'm Cohen Culver for the Meeson podcast. Thank you and goodbye until the next time. Bye.